One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Monsters, Inc. Anybody else here like Monsters, Inc.? It's a great, it's a great film. The, uh, uh, I am struck by the, uh, the humor, the enchanting sweetness, the plot twists. Uh, the lines are very quotable as well. Some of the lines of Monsters, Inc. have worked their way into our family lexicon. For example, this one we say all the time, um, got any odorant? Uh, I'm out of odorant. Got any wet dog? which is usually said in our home when somebody is just finished bathing the puppy, you know, and it's just the nastiest. Why do dogs smell? Anyway, just terrible. Um, and, then there's, and then there's this one. This one comes up quite a bit in our home. Uh, put that thing back where it came from, or so help me. It's usually me singing that in a Mike Wazowski voice when somebody is tempting me with carbs that I'm not supposed to have. Or there's this version, same thing, but it comes up when somebody is taking a verse of the Bible and ripping it out of context, and I find myself singing, put that scripture back where it came from, so help me, so help me, boom, boom, boom. And, um, and there's another one that's really worked its way into our family. It has to do with contamination, and it's 2319. Even if you've never seen the film, take a look at In my family, I love that clip. In my family, we say 2319 whenever something is contaminated. Like, like when people put cilantro in queso. Um, just don't write me, by the way, you, you cilantro lovers, your, your herb is fine. It just so happens I'm allergic to it. I, I am allergic to it, so cilantro is a 2319 for me. Okay, I bring that up because if the Apostle Paul had written 1 Corinthians after the release of Monsters, Inc., I feel confident he would have put a big header in the parchment on, on halfway through chapter 11, and it would have said, 2319, we need decontamination. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me show you. Uh, let's start with, with uh, verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 11. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one, each one eats his own supper ahead of the others, so one person's hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. 
Uh, in your notes, you'll see my, my summary headline, Factions Mar the Lord's Supper. Oh, you got, a, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open that up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see Factions Mar the Lord's Supper. You see, in the earliest churches, the Lord's Table, get this now, the Lord's Table apparently was not celebrated as part of the assembly. Did you know that? At least we, we have no hint of communion happening in a church assembly until the third century. Instead, the church used private homes to celebrate what they called the agape feast. Um, in large churches, it seems to have occurred as various small groups after the gathering. Various small groups will go back to different people's homes. In, in, in smaller churches, it seems like the whole church gathered after the celebration assembly. They gathered in one villa and had the Lord's table there. And what they would do, groups would set up in the large courtyard, or if it's bad weather, uh, in the Mediterranean it's not very often, but if it's bad weather, they'd meet inside, and they would always arrange themselves in, um, in the standard seating for a, for a banquet in the Mediterranean, which was called a triclinium. It's the arrangement Jesus would have had at his Last Supper, and it's how every agape feast happened. People seated in kind of a horseshoe shape, and they called this the agape feast. More on that name in a moment. Their Lord's Supper, thus, if you'll think about it, it was celebrated more like a church potluck. Now, large churches today uh, only have potlucks on occasion. It's just a difficult thing to pull off. But I bet many of us here have been to a church potluck dinner. Who's been to a potluck dinner uh, at a church? Okay, some of my favorite memories of my childhood were, po were potluck dinner nights. At, at the little church where I grew up, the kids would, would all play in the courtyard for a long time while all the adults set up the meal. And then when you went inside, this was the drill. Your mom would always, every one of our moms would walk through the line with you, forcing you to get casserole and vegetables and things like that. And you had to go sit down and eat all of that. But the deal was you wanted to eat that as quickly as possible so that you could then go to the dessert table and get some of Mrs. Hirsch's dessert. Whatever it was, it was always amazing. Mrs. Hirsch's dessert was incredible and you wanted to get some before it was all gone. All right? That is, is pretty much, oh, those desserts, what a great memory. That is pretty similar to what Paul's describing 2,000 years earlier, except, I'm ashamed to say, we didn't really make our meal all about remembering Jesus. They were supposed to. It was the whole point of the agape feast. Now, you should know there is great debate over whether this meal the church has enjoyed was a precursor to the celebration of remembrance at the Lord's table or if the meal itself was part of the Lord's Supper. Did they, did they eat a big feast and, and then take communion or did they make it the, the feast itself part of the communion celebration? Are you ready for the answer? I don't know. I don't know. We can't, we can't figure it out with certainty. Nobody can. All we know for sure is that some form of, of the Lord's Supper, what we often call communion, was part of this feast practice. Of course, there's another related question. How often did they partake of the Lord's Supper? Or to put it in the way that it is normally asked of me, someone approaches me and in their favorite Needleman accent, they say, how often should a church take communion? And I tell them that's a great question. There are three valid options. Three valid options. One possibility is that when Jesus told his followers to remember him this way, he meant once a year. You do this once a year at the Passover Seder meal. After all, he gave that command at a Passover Seder meal. However, that is not the practice in Corinth. Um, from, from this text and other accounts, we can tell that this church, at least, met for communion more than once a year. And since Paul doesn't chastise them for that, it must not be out of bounds. Second possibility is that remembrance is for every week on the first day of the week. The church assembly took place then, 
They, they gathered, as we still do, on the first day of the week in honor of Jesus' resurrection. By the way, by the second century, uh, we know of at least some churches that were taking the Agape Feast every week. Third possibility, option three, is that Jesus meant the regular feasts, the regular potluck kind of meals that were just part and parcel of classical life. And this was part of Jewish life and Gentile life. Um, about once a month in, in each setting. So for the Jews, about once a month, somebody in your community would offer a Thanksgiving feast to God, which meant you would have a feast together. Or it would be one of the regular feasts that is proclaimed in the Old Testament. In Greek life, just about every person in Greco-Roman society of any status belonged to what we would call a club. They belonged to clubs. And those clubs would have symposia about once a month. And at the symposium, which really was a drunken fest for most of them, but at the symposium, they would, they would eat and drink. It's similar to what happened to me when I first moved to Texas. First moved to Texas, these old guys invited me to come join them at their monthly gathering for their club. It was the Rock Creek Barbecue Club. Oh, it was, it, was, it doesn't exist anymore. All the old guys died off, but oh my goodness, it was really awesome while it lasted. That's pretty similar to the monthly Greek symposia. Now, you ready for the answer? Which did Jesus mean? Did he command celebrating the Lord's Supper, Communion, Agape Feast once a year, every week, or about once a month? You ready for the answer? I don't know. No one does. No one does. And, of course, you respond to that in your favorite Inigo Montoya accent saying, I must know, to which I have to reply, get used to disappointment. Um, now, even though we don't know everything, we still know a lot about the Agape Feast and how it was supposed to run. Sadly, though, at Corinth, the Agape Feast was being contaminated. However they did it, however often, it was contaminated, and that's the big deal. To explain, we've got to go back to why they called it an Agape Feast. You see, there are four Greek words for love. Eros, storge, uh, philia, or philos, and agape. Eros is uh, sexual attraction love. Gregory called it hot desire. That's not used in the New Testament. doesn't appear there. Uh, storge is familial love. Uh, Plato said it really nicely. A child loves, used a form of storge, and is loved by those who beget him. Uh, by the way, in the New Testament, storge only appears in one passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, which is really fascinating because it, it implies that, that God views the Christian community, those who know Jesus Christ, as a form of family. Very intriguing. Uh, philia, uh, phileo, is warm affection love. It's used, of, it's used of really beautiful friendships, and it's a word that appears in the New Testament rather often. Agape is different than all those. Agape is a mindful choice to love. It is the power to love the unlovable. It is self-sacrificial benevolence. By the way, agape appears, it is the great Christian word. It appears 120 times as a noun, over 130 times as a verb in the New Testament. Now think, isn't it telling the early Christians called their memorial supper that they had for Jesus an agape feast and not a storge supper? Isn't that intriguing? Agape feast, not a phileo potluck. They were recognizing that Jesus' love, what we remember in communion and to which we are called, Jesus' love is self-sacrificial. It's not love because you, you naturally just like everyone or have warm fuzzies for your church family. Agape is a choice. Dr. Barclay summarizes really nicely. Look what he says. The great reason that Christian thought fastened on agape is that agape demands the exercise of the whole man. Agape has to do with the mind. It is not simply an emotion which rises unbidden in our hearts. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. Agape has supremely to do with the will. It is a conquest, a victory, an achievement. 
That is the word our forefathers chose to define their communion feast. It is a celebration of Jesus' willful, self-sacrificial love. But when we don't actively choose that kind of love, our feast in Jesus is tainted. And one cannot, one cannot love when defining oneself according to divisions instead of unities. This has been a theme through the whole letter. Look, way back, chapter 1, look what Paul said. Now, I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. Thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, just think of the country where I live. Think of America. Our people are united in conviction, and we are free of rivalries, right? In 1993, Daniel J. Borston was 78 years old. He was probably the most respected thinker in America. Uh, here's how highly regarded he was. Get this. Singular experience. When, when he retired in 1993 so that he could spend more time on his writing, uh, he, from librarian, he was the librarian of Congress. When he retired, without his knowledge, a special session of Congress came together in which the House and the Senate unanimously passed a resolution establishing a new office that had never existed before, the Librarian Emeritus of the United States, and they begged him to stay on in that capacity. Is that amazing? Being an Oklahoman, Borston was no fool. He, um, he took the job, and then in an interview that year, he said the following, and I quote, The menace to America today is the emphasis on what separates us rather than what brings us together. The notion of a hyphenated American is un-American. It's time that we reaffirm the fact that what has built our country is community, and that community is solely dependent on the willingness of people to build together. Close quote. Now let me ask you this. In the many years since Borston said that, has America become more or less divided? Since 1993, more or less divided? More, yeah. And that division appears inside churches as well. In case you don't know, there are strong movements. There, there are strong movements in Christianity today that call for more separation, not less. Now, some of these are baldly racist. Others, others you know what they do? They demand that you agree with their abiblical or or sometimes even unbiblical points, or you will be considered a second-class member of that church. Darrell Harrison is a black Christian. He is a deacon at his church. He is a writer, I think a good writer. He recently made this observation. I like this so much I put it in your notes. He said, sin is the begetter of the enmity that originally separated mankind from God and likewise is the source from which every conceivable form of disharmony originates in our relationships with each other. What many today refer to as racism is not the genesis of such human animus, but is merely a byproduct of it. Our failure to recognize this is what has given rise to an unbiblical worldview being propagated by many professing Christians, and by the way, this is fairly widespread, which declares that certain people groups should be deemed collectively guilty and thus lesser in the church, close quote. His analysis is accurate. And it's not only accurate for America today, it's accurate for Corinth. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Let, would you like some encouragement? Let, let me encourage you. Give me, let me give you a couple of positive examples. This past week, I enjoyed lunch. I had a great lunch with eight other pastors from our city. And, and every one of us is utterly committed to our unity in Christ, even though they're all heretics. Uh, I'm kidding. 
I'm totally kidding. They're wonderful folks. Uh, we had a great time. Despite our differences, which are important, we had a great time building together on our unity. The next day, the day after that, I got into a scriptural conversation with this doctor. We got to talking about a passage of scripture. And this doctor, by the way, has escaped, had escaped from Iran. Another doctor overheard us talking, and he came walking over. And, and by the way, as I got to know him, his parents escaped persecution in China. While we're discussing this scripture, a nurse comes over, and her very strong Russian accent was very lovely as she joined in the conversation. Then another nurse came over into this little impromptu Bible study, and it turns out she was born in Israel. All of them are talking with me, a Native American who looks white. We conversed for over an hour about the Lord and about Scripture. Folks, we enjoyed real communion. And you know why we enjoyed real communion? Because each of those people is defined solely by the love of Jesus. And that alone. By contrast, verse 19 of our text, look, look at verse 19. It drips with sarcasm. Oh, this is sarcastic. Paul is, make, Paul is making fun of them here. He is making fun of a mindset that we are supposed to outgrow in middle school. Um, it, it works like this. Among early teens, it's often a struggle to know who's cool, right? So, so what happens is teenagers will have an alpha male or a queen bee that will, that will kind of define a group, and then, and then in that group you find safety. There's some security and some safety. You, you submit to the rules of the group as defined by the alpha male or the queen bee. Now, it's, it's nonsensical, and as people grow up, they're supposed to leave that nonsense behind. The Corinthians have not yet done so. Clicks and casts are killing their agape. And, and their communion is also being spoiled by greed. Look at it. While some people are still cleaning up the meeting place, others are eating all the food. Mrs. Hirsch's dessert is all gone before some people even arrive. It's horrifying. And, of course, this stretches beyond merely their, their agape feast. There, there's, a reason, there's a reason our forebears took to calling this Lord's Supper communion. It is a celebration of our communion with God and our communion with His redeemed community. Their communion is being ruined. Not just the agape feast, but their fellowship with God and church is being contaminated. 2319, indeed. What a mess. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave them there. God provides what people need for the restoration of communion. And that's the point uh, in the rest of the passage. It's also the headline atop the right side of our notes. There are three steps in restoring communion. The first step in restoration is that we must remember. Look at the next section, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus and Paul are building on, on an ancient Hebrew calling to remember. To, res, to restore one's communion with the Lord, one must remember. Specifically, there are three big things the Old Testament calls on all of God's people to remember. 
Um, I, I don't have time to go through all the scriptures associated with this. Let me just give you the, the, the summary. Three things that we're to remember. Number one, we're to remember the wonderful things Yahweh has done for us. Number two, we're to remember that God demands that we repent and turn from our sins and instead love him with our all. And thirdly, we're to remember the new covenant of promise that he has granted to all his people, a covenant of promise by faith. Those three major remembrances are, are huge in the Old Testament, and they're behind Jesus' words on the Passover Last Supper, and they're behind Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians. So let's get the proper mindset. Let's think for a minute about what the Lord has done for us. Anybody want to volunteer? I would like some volunteers to raise your hands, and, and, and when I call on you, share with us one great blessing that the Lord has given you. Raise your hand. Tell me one great blessing the Lord has given you. Yes. Children. Amen. What's that? Restored health. Restored Amen. Yes. Well said. How about over here? Yes. A loving family. Nicely said. Yes, sir. Life. Amen. Yes, sir. Brought your daughter home. Yeah, that is, we're all rejoicing. Yes, over here. Somebody. Come on. I know some of you people. I'm going to call on you. Yes. Friends. Very nice. That's awesome. Somebody else back there. Come on, peanut gallery. Somebody, yes, right over there. What, buddy? Go ahead. Pets. Nicely said. And you have plenty. Yes. Um, you know, we could do that all day and we would only scratch the surface, right? You realize that. And, and we should do that all day. Of course, what the Lord does stretches beyond just our individual blessings, right? There, he's, he's, there are things that he does for all humankind. For example, what, what is this? What is that? It's a rainbow. It, it, it is a memory tool. Do you remember that from the Scripture? A rainbow is a reminder of the promise of God that he is going to let human life play out despite our wickedness. Wyatt over here said he's thankful for life. You know what? The rainbow reminds us that God gives life even though absolutely no human deserves it. He gives us a chance to live. But sadly, what happens is God's blessings are overlooked, right? Or, or his symbols get warped, which has certainly happened today with the rainbow, and, and, and that's why it's so important we get back to the truth and we remember. Speaking of memory, by the way, one thing i got to clear up. This Lord's Supper is clearly a memorial, all right? With all love and respect, those who say that communion is anything other than a memory tool are missing the text. They're missing. Remember, if, if, if Jesus and Paul were describing, say, transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and cup transmogrify into Jesus' actual physical self, then the scene here in verse 24 makes no sense. Jesus is there at that first communion Seder. There's no means or need for transformation. The Lord's Supper Agape Feast is about remembering what God has done for us. All God's people said? Amen. Secondly, we must remember to repent and turn from our sin to God. This is what it means to proclaim the Lord's death. Look, until He comes and makes us completely glorified, we proclaim that we need salvation. We need the body and blood of Jesus for our justification. It's the only way we are made right before God, justified. We, we need the intervention of Jesus and His Holy Spirit who could not come until Jesus returned. We need that in our daily sanctification, and we're going to need all this until we are changed in glorification. We are always in need. That's what it means to proclaim and thus we must repent. We Christians, and by the way, this is Paul's audience. You know, Paul only uses the term brethren of believers in Jesus Christ, only of them. And he calls these people brethren. We must turn from our continuing evil. This is not addressing non-Christians. 
Christians need to repent. That is, we need to change our minds and turn from our sin to God. We need to remember that we're in need. For any Jew, including Jesus and Paul, the idea of remembering is always tethered to this great statement. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, there's a, there's a beautiful passage. It's familiar to many of us, and it's known in Hebrew circles by the very first word. The first word is Shema. I, I, I recently taught on Shema when I was teaching uh, Nehemiah as a reminder Shema is a very intricate word. It's an intricate combination of listen, remember, and obey. It's a repentance word. It's a word for repent. You, you listen and you remember and you obey. Israel's to listen to Yahweh the Lord. They are to focus, to remember. And in remembering, they're to live differently, obediently, loving the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all our might. Jesus and Paul build on that and they say to proclaim Jesus' death is continually remember that we need Him. We need His death on our behalf. We especially need Him to keep opening our eyes to our continual purification needs from our sins. Darrell Harrison, the, the deacon from whom we heard earlier, he had more to say about this. Look what he said. He said, I'm reminded of the French theologian and reformer John Calvin, who in his classic work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, quotes the renowned philosopher Aristotle who declared, where incontinence prevails... Man loses the specific knowledge of good and evil through his unruly appetites because he cannot see in his own sin the evil which he commonly condemns in others. Close quote. Remembering Shema helps me to see that log in my own eye so I can repent. And, and then God will help me actually repudiate my pet sins and love Him with my all. To restore communion, we must remember. Remember all God has done. Remember to do, God's demand to repent and remember that we're in a new covenant. This Lord's Supper is a spiritual feast. We approach it as redeemed people, not as people who are condemned. All God's people said, Amen. We are in a new covenant sealed by Jesus' blood. When we remember that, we draw near with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, confidence in God. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 14, you take the underlined text. Therefore, by the way, in the context in Hebrews 4, the therefore is all because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have complete access to God's grace. We have new life and a new covenant. We can be new every morning instead of, instead of dragging around the broken wings of past failures. We who trust Jesus are bonded into a covenant, a relationship with God Himself based on His sacrifice alone. When we remember that, we're prepared for restored communion. Remember. Now, second step in restoration is we must evaluate ourselves. Look, in, in verses 27 to 32, Paul further applies this repentance motif from the Old Testament. Read it. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. Many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. There are two particular assessments here. First, we evaluate ourselves in regard to unity. Look at verse 29. It must be talking about assessing our unity. Body must be talking about the unified body of Jesus that is his church. Otherwise, he would have added, and the cup. The text declares, look, if we don't examine ourselves regarding our unity, we incur judgment. Now, 
Now, unity, you know this, right? Unity is not something we create. We can't ever create unity. Jesus has already done that. We are His body. Unity is something we delight in, we protect, we, we develop, we enjoy. And lack of unity is a cause for self-examination. I, I don't know about you, but when I honestly look in the mirror of my soul, I become astonished that anyone would desire to be bonded with me at all. And upon that examination, something strange happens, something wonderful. I stop noticing all the differences I have with all of my weird brethren in all of their strange factions. And instead, I start noticing how alike we are, and especially how we are unified by this one thing. We need Jesus every moment of every day. We're the same. We're in need. And, and then I'm in a position to develop and appreciate our unity. You, you, may, you may have experienced this, like even at work. Um, you're, you're, in a, you're in a group, right? And you're, you're troubled by this nagging feeling of disunity. If you're, like, if you're like most of the rest of us, here's what you do. You spend a lot of time talking about the leader's flaws, you know, all the things that are wrong with the leaders of the group. And, and that's fine. And you spend a lot of time talking about the foibles of your idiotic uh, cohorts with whom you work. And that's understandable too. But nothing ever changes until you examine yourself. Because whatever anyone else does, you cannot enjoy communion until you go through humble self-examination. And the passage leads us to a second regular assessment. The second assessment is in regard to the seriousness of the Father's chastisement. Wonderfully, the Father does not condemn Christians along with the world that rejects Him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All God's people said? Also wonderfully, the Father does correct Christians. He convicts us of sins. In, in, in this text, we, we learn that He especially judges our disunity in the body. This includes the reality. Look at the, look at the Scripture. This includes the reality that He can and does take physical life. James chapter 5 describes this as well. When a Christian is embarrassing the Lord by rebellion or by disunity, here's what God can do. He can remove that offender from this planet, taking that person home. Again, we are not judged with the unbelieving world, nor are we judged like them. They face the hell of eternal separation from God. Christians do not, but Christians can and do lose rewards in eternity because of sin. We lose opportunities to praise God and enjoy life today. We get sick from contaminated unity, and some even lose their physical life here and now because they refuse to exult in the unity of Jesus' body. Look at verses 27 and 29. Look, these are written in parallel on purpose, okay? The unworthy way of taking the agape feast is parallel to show us that the unworthy way is to take without recognizing our communion as Jesus' body. So think this through. Think it through. If I approach the Lord's Supper with bitterness or, or malice or envy or hatred toward one of my fellow brethren, then, then I'm, actually, I'm actually poisoning Jesus' own body. And I need God to lead me in repentance. If I've been gossiping, if I've been tearing down reputations, if I've been disunifying a church of Jesus Christ, then, then I'm eating and drinking judgment on myself. The, the image here is that I'm part of this body, and when I tear at it, I'm tearing at myself. Now, there, there are two important thoughts to add here, very important. First, Scripture does not give any of us the place to declare when and where this happens. We dare not pretend 
that we know God's reasons when a physical life ends. That's paganism. That, that is pagan thought that puts us on the throne. This is between every individual Christian and God. Second, God's response is not harsh. Think it through. His response here is amazingly mild. Okay, just, just suppose. Suppose that someone is attacking your child. All right, let, let me put it this way. Someone or something is trying to dismember your son. What, what do you do? What's your reaction? You go berserk, right? Right? You go bonkers. And, and by the way, the law is on your side. You cannot be tried for murder or even manslaughter if you are defending your child from an attacker. So if you're as wicked as I am, you want to take full advantage of that. In fact, you don't, if somebody's trying to dismember my son, I don't just want his body. Let me just be honest. I don't just want his body. I want his soul to burn forever. Thankfully, God is not like me. At the most severe, all he ever does is put the offender to sleep, which is a euphemism for physical death. Just physical death, and then they're changed. Communion is restored by remembering, by evaluating, thirdly, by being other-centered. We must be other-centered. Read the last two verses in our text. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And I'll give you instruction about the other matters whenever I come. We plan our lives around others' needs as well as our own. By the way, I don't know, but this may be a reason why... So many churches in the ancient world took the agape feasts in private homes without any elder, without any shepherd to oversee it. They didn't need any oversight. It, it of course, was going to go well because everyone was supposed to defer to one another. But the Corinthians didn't defer. And, it, and this is a serious and increasing problem in our age. Have you noticed? There is a, there is a blindness to others' needs that is very troubling. And I'm talking about Christians. I, let me just share just... Really quickly, just a couple of examples from my own experiences recently, okay? I was, uh, I was at a show, and, uh, and this child was making a ruckus. And, and kids do that. That's what they do. It's part of life. It's okay. But this kid was being so loud and, and quite frankly, so obnoxious that all the people around him and his mom in the theater, they, they, couldn't e they could not even enjoy the show. But the mom, this surprised me. I kind of kept looking down and expecting her to do the noble thing and take the kid and, and go outside for some instruction, maybe some chastisement. I don't know what the situation was. No, she just sat there. And in fact, whenever one of the people around them would shh at the kid, the mom would turn and glare at them. Now, just so happens I had to, I had to wait for someone at the restroom, and so I was outside, and I ended up, in conversation with this mom and this kid after the show. And it turns out they're Christians. In fact, she listens to our podcasts. At least she used to. <laughs> but here's what struck me. We got to talking about our kiddo in there and how mean all those people were and how rude they were. And, and I, had, I had the blessed opportunity to get to talk to her about what I observed. And, and I will say she took it pretty well. But here's what amazed me. It had never occurred to her. It never even crossed her. She said, that never crossed my mind. That she should have sacrificed her money she paid to be at this theater. She should have sacrificed so that other people could be blessed. Never crossed her mind. Here's another example. Um, 
a Christian kid, a Christian teenager, um, was at a church gathering, and I watched him recently. And when he came in, he ran right up to the plate of cookies. And I thought, smart kid, what a smart kid. But then I was horrified to watch as he took every one. Every cookie was either in his mouth or in his hands or in his pockets. There was no thought in his mind that, it, that he would have been more blessed if he would have let other people partake as well. Last one. Recently, in fact, it was just this week, I pulled up uh, at a stoplight uh, here in Frisco and, uh, and looked to my left and there was this big gap. And I looked back and the driver of this white car in the next lane over, he must have had some passive-aggressive thing going because he, he left a gap that was at least three car lengths between him and the car in front. And all it does is make the line longer. In fact, it, it's, it's rude because it makes it less likely that the people behind him are going to have a chance to get through that light. And I looked back there and I thought, man, that guy needs Jesus. He, <laughs> he, he needs to think of other people. He needs the Lord. So we drive on, and a little bit later, my line ends up getting stuck for some reason. And so the guy passes me, and as he goes by me, I see that he has an ichthus on his car and a sticker for one of the churches in town. And my only response was, thank God it's not our church's sticker. That's all I could, that's all I could think. Instead of all those examples of self-centeredness, and we could all tell them on ourselves, we must plan our lives around other people's needs as well as our own. Amen? It is a must if we are going to restore communion. It's a must. Read with me the great instruction, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Amen. With that in mind, I, I invite you um, to join me for a time of evaluation with the Lord. Let, let's spend some time praying through this passage. In fact, I'm going to kneel. If you would, I recommend that. It helps me with humility before the Lord. You don't have to. You can kneel. You can stand. You can stay where you're at. But whatever you want to do, get in a position where you can engage with the Lord for a minute. Let's talk to Him together. Why don't we start by why don't you start by confessing your 2319 the contamination the the sin the ugliness of your soul today Especially, I recommend you focus on unity thoughts. That's what our text was really about. So confess that um, grumpy attitude in your family or the, um, the disunity that you're actually, maybe unwittingly, but helping to foster at work. And now remember, please take a moment and remember. Thank God for what He's done. 
what he is doing and what he will do. Thank God that if you are a believer in Jesus, you're in a new covenant. And while these are thanking you, Lord, and remembering, I want to pray for anyone, anyone studying with me that is not a believer in Jesus. Please, Father, draw them to you right now. Jesus, he is exactly what was prophesied. He is the Messiah, the substitute the Son of God who died on the cross to pay for my sin, the sin of all who trust Him. And He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead so that we could follow Him in everlasting life. It's a new covenant, a covenant of belief. You cannot earn your way to God. No one can. He is holy and we are not. But in Jesus we have salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you're saved. Trust Him right now. Trust Jesus as your Savior. And now all you Christians, join me. Talk to the Lord as an individual in regard to um, your evaluation. Particularly the seriousness of the Father's chastisement. Where is he correcting me? Lord, where would you have me change? And now if you would talk to God about other-centeredness. About how hard it is. Impossible, really, for us. But with God, all things are possible. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember and to evaluate and to commit ourselves to other-centeredness. In Jesus' name, amen.